On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, I sit down with Canadian outfitter and veteran hunting guide, Chad Miller. With roughly 100 ram kills on his resume, Chad is a real-life living legend. Chad's experience and personal story warrants my highest respect. I recently learned more from Chad on a 10-day sheep hunt than I have from my own painful experiences across the last decade. Chad ain't got any tattoos, but if he did, it'd be a throat tat dubbed Been There, Done That. This guy is so damn cool. So listen up. Canada's finest about to show out. I give you Mr. Chad Miller. Can you hear yourself? Uh, yep. Now I got it. Oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> thought you were going to get out of it. You know? <laughs> I was like, I'm so close. <laughs> oh, hey, got to run. And anyways, looks like your stuff doesn't work. <laughs> uh, good effort. Uh, I'm going to take my beer, though. and <laughs> Not so fast. <laughs> I'll see you here in a bit. Oh, man. Did you get all your chores done? I think we're close. Yeah? Yeah. It's not, ash is on it pretty good when we're gone, so that's, it's not... That's helpful. Yeah, it doesn't really... Uh, Vital might be a better word. <laughs> it's pretty key. If you're going to go out in the field a little bit while you're doing it, you got to. Yeah. Just, yeah. Where, well, the cat is away, the mice will play. <laughs> Unless ash is here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If ash is here, then there's no play. Then yeah. It's crack down time. You guys have got quite an operation here. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It's I, unbelievable. I really enjoy it. It's It's been super fun. And it's cool. It's just, uh, well, I'm sure it takes up more than three months of your life every year. Uh, but you kind of live here and operate for three full months or more. Yeah, typically we're in here about uh, like June, mid-June kind of thing. We'll yeah. be in. And then I leave here about the, uh, about probably October 15th, somewhere in there. October 10th, try and wrap up. We move that mic just a little bit away from your lip, just so you don't How's exhale that? into it. It's good. Uh, the only rule is just don't uh, don't touch it too much. You hear All that right. stuff too much. How's that better? That's perfect. I still. Where'd you grow up? Vanderhoof, BC, geographical center of British Columbia. Is that right? It's their claim to fame. Yeah. If you look at BC and you point at the dead center of the Providence, you you hit it. You're right in the middle, yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's a little, like, farm town, uh, about 5,000 people. And you grew up in kind of a rural setting. Very rural. Pretty rural, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and was that your entire childhood? Yeah. You born into that, or did you all move out into the country later in childhood? Well, we lived out of town probably, like, 10 minutes to start with, and then Dad had a place that he had got kind of out of town about, it's only about half an hour, but it's, like, really remote half hour okay like you have to there's no power and uh I, for a long time we actually took a quad to the suburban so that we could drive to the school bus wow like we didn't have a road that was accessible by a vehicle in the spring especially because of the mud and, did, and you went to a, a public school we did went to a private christian school mm -hmm. up until uh grade 10 i believe and then finished in a public school after that and you got you got a handful of brothers. Do you have a sister? No sisters. Just the four brothers. Four brothers, yeah. 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 Yeah, three of us. Or three brothers and myself. And dad, big hunter? Hunted quite a bit and then just let us hunt whenever we wanted to. I mean, that was kind of, that was that was dad's pitch when we moved up to, uh, 
where we all grew up was that uh, we could go and do all the hunting and fishing and trapping that we wanted to, and we and we were kind of kicking off a trap line. Uh, Blair and I had started trapping at that point, and we were your brother. Yeah, I want to say we were like eight and nine or something like that. No and way. We were trapping some stuff, and we had caught like a couple coyotes and foxes or whatever. And well, that's pretty impressive. It was pretty lucky, honestly. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was pretty random. But then when we moved up there, then we were able to go and do a whole bunch of it. So that we, I mean, every day you were out doing something like that. So did your dad trap, or was it something you all just kind of pursued? Dad, dad really liked trapping growing up, and then and then he did a bit of hunting and stuff like that. And yeah some fishing and kind of a little mix of those three well it, it planted an impression in all you boys because <laughs> yeah. uh you and all your brothers are operating and fully involved with uh different outfits today in bc yeah yeah bc and alberta bc and alberta yeah, you, yeah. Your, your whitetails in alberta yeah you look yeah. forward to that every year i do yeah that one's a riot i, I get a huge kick out of that one do you go into that real exhausted from this camp? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be a yeah. lower, uh, you know, that's got to be less stressful than this. Or maybe that's just a little bit easier. Maybe, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. No, no. You, no, you're right. Logistically, it's a lot simpler. Like everything is, is you don't have to deal with fly-in and it, quite as many staff and everything is, you can drive over to it or, right, right. or phone someone and just go, hey, we uh, broke this part. Can I go yeah, pick it up? Go or, get a new one. Yeah, 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 it's pretty simple that way. Ah, I, hear, I hear your 206 coming back in. Yeah, it must be. That's the that's the supply. Enough. Only way <laughs> things get here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that thing's a sick plane. So, you're a pilot? I have a student license right now. Yeah, you're working yeah. on it. Yeah, I should wrap it up here shortly. Uh, I have about 130 hours in a... Uh, that's a lot. Yeah, it's getting there. In in a tail dragger super cub, right? And then in a uh, in a one seventy two for training, the Cessna. You love uh love that super cub. That cub is the funnest one. Yeah. I I agree with you, man. The kit you can do any you can go anywhere. Well, it's cool because you know how applicable it is too to what to what you love doing. Right. So it's like oh man, once you figure it out and once you have it dialed in and you can do those things, you're like, it's pretty crazy to be able to like move around and do that stuff pilot in alaska once told me anybody can fly high and fast the real guys the real pilots fly low and slow <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're working on that i don't know if i'm quite there yet at yeah. 130 hours it might be a while out <laughs> yeah, yeah uh so back to growing up in central british columbia as a kid you you kind of were raised in a rural setting with your brothers you, you did a lot of hunting and trapping um, walk me through some of your earlier years and what you're doing down there. Ah, which parts? What do you want to? Well, you're hunting. Uh, were were you deer hunting there? What what kind of trap line were you running? What kind of hunting? Uh, All right. Kind of did you like in the early years? Well, because you didn't start off stone sheep hunting. No, no, we didn't start off with that one. We so the hunting part of it, we we mostly deer hunted. Deer and moose would have been the main ones. Mostly mule deer. Okay. And then, uh, the the type of hunting we would have done would have been more uh, like field type settings, like hunting the edges and like close timber. We weren't we weren't real familiar with how to set up stands and do that kind of stuff. We we're pretty young and and had never really done any of that stuff at that point. So yeah. a lot of just hiking and and trying to catch stuff out in the open and and uh, 
optics weren't a budget on a trapping budget. <laughs> so it was just trying to get close to them and, and find one that you that you wanted to yeah. take. And when did you uh, graduate into packing or guiding? What was your first step into that world? So that one was actually kind of cool. So we had a really good friend of the family's, uh, Monty Schumann, actually, that uh, I was coming out of high school and uh he had mentioned he's like i was kind of fast tracking towards doing cabinetry or something like that i was hmm. i had really enjoyed it in high school woodworking and, yeah yeah and so i was i had a, a job offer at a cabinet shop in my hometown and i was kind of thinking that's what i would wind up going and doing something like that and he's hmm. like well you know uh you got you're you're pretty young you got a whole summer he's like you should uh i got a friend of mine that's working in the cassiar mountains and uh you should give him a shout and and go try this wrangling and packing thing out. You'd be good at it, yeah. Yeah, he thought that we'd like it. So I was like, well, I mean, you're, I was 17 at the time, turned 18 in the mountains, I believe is how that worked. Hmm. And uh, and then gave this guy a call, and he had a position for me, and went up, and and uh, it so was. What's that look like? You signed up for like a season? Yeah. Yeah. You're like I'm gonna come work for you for a season and yeah. be a be a packer and a chorman. You weren't a guide. I didn't even know it was a what it was to be honest i didn't know you're it was just an industry. Go work yeah i was just i thought i was just going to work i was like all right well i'll see what it is kind of thing right <laughs> yeah and it was incredible like so what did that look like was it a fly out camp a ride in or... yeah so it was a flying camp but we trailed horses in so it wasn't like here where we leave the horses over winter okay what we so we would trail uh the first part of it we would trail about three days and you'd be into the main area that we were that we'd stay for the for a good chunk of time right up the rocky mountain trench actually it was pretty cool hmm. and then uh after you after you would get there you would just take off and head out to all your different places from there a little later on we wound up going into uh an area farther north and that actually started turning into like a week 10 day trail ride in which oh, wow. was pretty insane yeah yeah that's uh that's quite an expedition style oh. of getting into some place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It it was pretty fun. Like I, I will say, like looking back at it, it was like you would get like a paper map and be like, All right. Oh wow. There was I mean, if I was leading out on one of those, I was nineteen years old and you had a crew of people and ten horses and you'd take this map and cruise through the Rocky Mountain trench and try and hit the right crossing and there was a few little landmarks they'd give you and you'd show up in a week or ten days depending on how quick you could do it. Did you grow up around horses? Not at all. No. So this was your introduction to horses too. Yep. Yeah, I took a a course like a like a guided packing type course for two weeks before I headed to the mountains, and mm. that was my intro to it. And learned basically how to tie a slip knot, a bowline, and a diamond. Those were my, that was all I knew about it going into it. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was it's a uh, it's a sharp learning curve to say the least on some well, of those. You're, you're you're quite a professional at it at this point. Um there's been a lot of trial and error. Yeah, ain't that life. So, uh your first your first year you were working out there in the Cassiers and you're just kind of thrown head first into this world of packing and wrangling and guiding uh out there as, as a young man yeah um what were some of the hunts that were going on in those in those years so the first ones that we did were were sheep and goat hunts and that's always kind of your august intro to the season seemed like and the goats carried on a little later on and and uh yeah did those ones and then we'd go into moose and caribou and a few more mountain goats and yeah, so that but that was kind of your introduction to like mount, a rugged mountain hunting, though, right? 
Oh, 100%. Right. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. that wasn't going on back at, in your hometown. No, I had never done it. I just, I still remember I had a uh, a Dana Design backpack that I had no clue. Oh, wow. Ryan had lent it to me and got absolutely mauled by guys, <laughs> like trying to keep up with them because I had never even gone hiking before. We grew up on a farm. Yeah. And it was like, you worked hard, but you never hiked with a pack or anything, right? right? So you just get destroyed by guys. It was the worst. It was I, all new, huh? It was so. It was fun though. It's like anything. Like when, when once you see what the challenge of it is, then it's fun to try and try and overcome it. So, what was the evolution from those early years into uh, a more formal guiding uh, schedule into uh, ultimately becoming an, an outfitter of your own? Well, I, I guess it's just I, I enjoyed it. I loved doing it, and and I so I put everything I had into it. Worked at it for. I don't know how many years it was, to be honest, until uh, I just kept guiding those trips and doing a good job and or trying to do the best job that you could, I guess, I'd say. And, and Yeah, you told me a story recently on our hunt together that I want you to try to retell about uh, when one of your first experiences as a young guy out doing these jobs where they left you for a while. And yeah, they told you to work on a cabin. What was that story? <laughs> that one's a pretty. It was pretty wild. That was the first season I was up there, and uh, the outfitter had dropped me off at a lake. It had two otter loads of of uh, supplies that they had dropped off, and uh, and a cab a cabin and a camp that had been absolutely destroyed by a grizzly bear. <laughs> I mean, it looked like he was like finger painting food on the ceilings. It was crazy. I had to <laughs> I had to scrape the ceilings off before I could repaint them. Oh my gosh! I don't know how or what he was doing in there, but he had destroyed it, like absolutely destroyed it. And and uh, they had dropped me off and said, "Hey, clean it up, get everything dialed in." And uh, there's a radio up there that looked like it was from like World War One. I. I never, I didn't even have a clue how to use it. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I was like, "No sat phone radio that I had." It was one. I, I don't. I still don't know what kind of radio it is. It's the one where you got to run the wires, those long wires, out of it. It comes in like a leather bag. Yeah, I feel like this is a straight World War One, like trench warfare yeah. <laughs> radio. So I was like, I I got dropped there. I was under the impression I was going to be in there for like a week to ten days, maybe two weeks or something like that. And then weather moved in while I was there, and uh, I had a map, and I knew and I knew one of the mountains from going through, but I wasn't familiar with the rest of the area. So I was like, well, if I could hike to this one mountain, then I know I could I could orient myself off of that and cut across to our other camp. But it had fogged in so much that I just couldn't find it. So I hiked around for, I think it was three days trying to find my way through. Just basically just got completely drenched. It was raining the whole time. It was horrible. <laughs> oh my. So you're you, 19. You got, what kind of gear are you carrying with you? Not gear. I remember, <laughs> <laughs> it was the worst. I Because I, I remember they sent me a gear list going into the mountains. And it was like, I had no clue what any of it was. We, we, we were so underprepared it was crazy dad and i dad was like oh yeah all this stuff no problem uh, hit army surplus right so we went down and it was like like those quarter inch wool pants yeah <laughs> it's like 14 sheep worth into them or whatever it is like that kind of stuff the only the only good thing that i had was brian had had set me up with a uh a pair of Mindel hiking boots boy that that was, that's helpful so I, so your feet weren't bleeding basically like your feet were dry and and yeah that that part was great everything else i had was was garbage had a eureka thermarest 
Mm. <laughs> just exploded <laughs> the first time oh, you no. used it. Like everything was, everything I had was garbage. But when you have about a $500 budget to get a 40 item list to go to the mountains for the first time, it doesn't go very far. No. So what were your instructions on that? When they dropped you off, they said, go fix up that cabin and uh, wait for us to come back, hike out of here. What was the What was the plan? Yeah, well, basically the plan was radio over if I wasn't going to hike through mm. with the radio that I didn't know how to use. <laughs> that wasn't demoed to me on how to use. Did you ever try to figure it out? I tried for days to figure it out. Like, <laughs> I was like, by the time I was done, I had been there for 17 days by myself. Oh, Lord. At 18 years old, you're like, you're... you're I had read every magazine. There was a deck. Of, I still remember there was a deck of cards that was in there, and I couldn't remember how to play solitaire, and it was like, driving me crazy. I tried like every method I could think of, and it wasn't turning out. So I just went and read all the magazines. I'd read the cigarette art ads yeah. in the magazines, like every part of it. You're just like anything to entertain yourself after a while. I got stuck in a camp once, waiting for a plane ride out, uh, only for like three days. And the only literature around was this, like, 1970s magazine uh, catalog of that year's Iditarod race. <laughs> and I read it over and over and over again. And it had, like, uh, mushers, biographies, and, like, featured dogs and, like, you know, some stories of races past and by the end of that i could have like recited i could have told you like the hometown of every musher in the 1974 i did a rod i don't remember it now but it's funny how you get into those those loops yeah because it's it's like you want some form of entertainment and i mean everything else that's entertainment is is pissing down rain outside you can't like unless you just want to go get all your stuff soaked again you're yeah, kind of like well kind of stuck yeah i guess we'll hang out here and so you knew dogs. this one mountain and you tried to go around it? I tried to find it because I, I knew if I could find the one peak, then I would be. there was a pass that was close to it, and I could take that pass and cut across and uh, and then there, and then hit the one lake. And once you hit the lake, I knew where I was. So Which would get you back to their base camp. Yeah, and then I could follow the lake to the base camp. And did that work? I did not. No, I, you, I, got, you had to head back to your grizzly cabin. Yeah, so I went back. It took me, what was it? I, I think it took me a week to clean up the cabin and get everything fixed, roughly, maybe somewhere in there. And uh, I repaired the door and cleaned everything, scraped grizzly poop off the ceiling. Oh, my gosh. And then uh, and then I went and hiked for three days trying to get through, And it, but it was, like, fogged right in, like, right down to the treetops. And, oh, man. Uh, and then, so I tried that for a bit, and I was like, all right, well, this isn't turning out because the fog's not lifting. So I, I was... I was close to the mountain. I, like, I knew I was really close to it. I just couldn't find which pass it was. And, it, I mean, you definitely wanted to hit the right one with no other way of orienting yourself. Yeah. At, at that point, I just didn't have any – you didn't have a skill set to do it. And uh, so then I went back to the cabin, and I still remember there was a, one, of the, one of the pilots that would do some of our flights. Had, I could hear a plane up the one day, and it was, like, circling around, and there was a little hole came through the – the sky and the plane came and landed and i was like there's people <laughs> humans <laughs> so and they were they were low on fuel so that so i convinced them that they could probably buy some fuel from the outfitter that i was working for at the time and 
and we could pop over to that camp and I'd just throw my stuff in. As long them. as I can, as long as you take me with <laughs> yeah. you, I can show you where some fuel is. Yeah. And actually he showed me how to use the radio as oh, well. Well, so that's we had, helpful. Which didn't matter because it wouldn't reach the other camp. So. Oh my gosh. It was, yeah, it was interesting. We tried it and couldn't communicate with anyone, but he's like, this is how you set it up. There were some wires that were broken inside of it. We had to fix that. And, well, yeah. if you survived that and still wanted anything to do with the with the outfitting and hunting world <laughs> you you set the bar pretty high for yourself yep. uh, so you went uh from that into more years of guiding over in that same area yeah i i worked over there i want to say it was for eight years that i guided in that area until the area sold mm -hmm. and then i went and worked on the coast for a while so that was canadian mountain outfitters i started there went over and worked for i did a season up in the nwt with which is now Raven's Throat. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, Redstone Trophy Hunts, I think, back then. Doll sheep hunting? Doll sheep hunting and caribou. And then uh, and then popped over to the coast and started guiding on the coast quite a bit. And Yeah. You, it sounds like you really loved the coast. Coast is a riot. It, yeah, the bears and the mountain goats yeah. over there. Oh, it's incredible. Well, every, everything that you hunt, it is going to be huge. Like you're hunting oh, is that big, right? the biggest mountain goats out there and the biggest grizzly bears that BC has to offer. And the biggest black bears. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like That's it interesting. Was, it was really fun. Yeah, you had three species that you that you hunted in. We 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 killed a bunch of wolves as well. There's quite a few of those up there, but Yeah. That was, that was pretty fun. Yeah, you're you've got quite a, a wolf resume. Um so when you were on the coast later were you working for your brother? Because I know your brother ultimately has become an outfitter and you did some work for him through the years. So when I worked on the coast, I worked with my other brother, Scott. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was, I started with Bolin and Lewis and then worked with, uh, Milligan outfitting as well. Yeah. And, uh, th that was incredible. It was super fun working there. And then, uh, and then my brother took over up in, uh, Northern BC, a different outfit and asked if Scott and I would come up there. So we went up and started guiding stone sheep back, uh, up there again as oh, well. Wow. So we had been guiding them before in the Cassiars and then moved over to the Rocky Mountains and started right. there. What's the difference between the uh, two sheep populations and in, in the in as far as like a stone sheep hunt goes? The the Rockies are a lot the Rocky Mountain areas that we uh, that I've worked in are a lot better. A lot uh easier access. I mean, there, I shouldn't say a lot better. There's incredible sheep hunting in the Cassiar Mountains as well. Mm. Just, it seems to be more pocketed, whereas the Rockies seem to be more spread out and... Consistent. It, yeah, and it is and it is for sure easier access for the most part throughout the Rocky Mountains. Cassiars are just, just tough to get to places. Tough to get to, but when you get there, it's it's really good. Hmm. That, that's what I found. I love hunting Logistically, it's just complicated and kind of a pain. Brushier, like tougher okay. country, more yeah. logistically more difficult as well, for sure. Yeah. Um, and sheep quickly became, I mean, the sheep and goat hunting kind of quickly became something that you were obviously good at and you you kind of in, invested yourself in. And we talked about it on the trail. You conservatively have been on somewhere in the ballpark of 100 ram kills. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say it would be right close to there now. I mean, I've That's incredible. My new favorite line is I've been doing it for longer than I haven't, so. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> but, yeah, I want to say it's around 23 years or something like that that I've worked in, in, in outfitting and guiding. 
and uh yeah the sheep hunting one is i i really enjoy the sheep and the goats i always i, I like both of them for for their own things i always tell people I, that the sheep hunting is like an accumulation of pain and goat hunting is all the pain in one day oh man like you got that. all so much wisdom <laughs> dropping on me right now <laughs> those are my that's why i enjoy it though like the goat hunt is just goat hunting is one of my favorites it's just, just pack so, it all into this yeah, one rip and it's usually like easier until then you're like oh you find them whatever it's right like you're never you very rarely find a mountain goat where you're like oh yeah it's 12 o'clock i'm gonna go and get them now mm-hmm. it's like oh you find them you watch them make a plan you get up early you abuse yourself for an entire day to get to them just before dark and you get them and then you spend the whole night packing them out yeah like it's just it's just fun yeah, it absolutely is. I I love sheep hunting or uh, goat hunting as well. I'm nowhere near your your resume, um, but I think I'm knocking on like 25 goat kills. That's a lot. Yeah, tw- you know. That's a lot. Low 20s, huh? I think. I, I'm probably in the ballpark of. Yeah. It feels like a lot. Oh, and it then, is a lot. And then you meet someone like yourself, and I'm like, God, I know nothing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I know anything extra. I think you kind of start doing the same things every time. Um, you have done some late season mountain goat hunting. I I do enjoy those. Those are yeah. One tell of my me favorite. tell me about those and what those hunts look like. Well, I guided quite a few to start with, and then they just they're they're one of my favorite hunts to do. I just really enjoyed them, and. Uh, and then I started going in and putting in for draws to do late season hunts. And then I, I, I like doing those ones like a solo hunt or go with a friend or something like that. But Just and, because of the, the combination of all of the challenges? Because it, the weather, the short days, the the animal, what it was just yeah, it's, challenging it, for you? Yeah, it's just interesting. Like the last one I did was, was probably my favorite and I had... Uh, one one of my cousins, uh, Gabriel, came with me, and we did a, uh, we like snowshoed back into an area, set up a tent on an area. I mean, it, you couldn't touch the bottom of the snow with a ten foot pole. I don't think. I oh mean, it wow! Was like you're just right on top of the snowpack, and then uh, and then chase goats around until and and we're archery hunting them until we got a big billy. So it was wow. super fun. Yeah, it's I I think when hunts turn into like full blown expedition style like combining like survival and hunting and travel traveling and uh, all those things together create some of the the best adventures possible and that's my experience too is some of the when you when you add in short days a lot of snow a really tough animal and really rugged dangerous country you're probably in for a really awesome rip yeah Oh, it's it's just such a fun trip. Like it's just cool. You're like part of it. You're on snowshoes and you're strapping crampons on. Well, and you know you you drag your ice axe around with you everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I do. The whole snowscopic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did you see when when that grizzly bear was flanking us the other day? Everybody <laughs> grabbed a rifle and I just double handed the snowscopic and I was like, this is all I got. <laughs> so this will work in a pinch. Well, it, it, it'll help. I'm gonna I try. Might, I might turn it on myself. Either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just fall on it. Yeah, the old snowscopic. We gotta get you one of those. Yeah, they're very they're very handy, um, but they're but, hard to find. Yeah, they seem to be. Yeah. No, I've used the. I typically I just use like a straight ice axe when I was working on the coast or or doing those trips. But then it's pretty handy, like for some of the stuff we were doing the other day, where we're kind of climbing along some nastier stuff and. Yeah, just to get an extra handle. 
it's it, yeah, and and you can self-arrest yourself. So there's a little bit of security there. Yeah. So tell me about self-arrest. Did you take a class or something the likes? Because you said something where like, well, they taught us to do this with the ice axe. When I say taught us, it was an outfitter told me that, that <laughs> I was working for that if you were going to ever fall down a chute, you should grab your ice axe by the top of the head, the middle of the body, and basically fall with the with the head part down chest first onto the snow into your sternum and just fall into it and yeah dig in. and just dig in and hang on to that thing and it will stop you so i mean my my training in it has been i've never actually had to do it in a situation but i've gone and put myself into spots and just like practice it a couple times just to see how well it works and so it wasn't the first time that it happened i was how to go fall, you stop almost immediately oh really yeah yeah, I've heard similar techniques that you roll onto your chest, roll onto your belly, and you bury it in and kind of hold it into your chest and also, like, kick your feet. Yeah. Um, but, man, what a scary situation that would be. Yeah, I hope I never have to use it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but, you know, that's the same reason we carry SOS buttons. I hope, <laughs> yeah. hope I don't need it, but I'm glad I got it. I hope I have time to hit the button while I'm falling. Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. That's why I carry my SOS button uh, within reach. I don't have it buried in my, I, we all carry our inreaches kind of like on our bino harnesses or in a, a pocket. And my thought is if I break my back or I'm laying somewhere dying, I, I don't want to have to get into my backpack to find that thing. Yeah. Just well, want to be able to press that button. Well, one of the other ones too is, I mean, with doing this stuff, well, we just did a bunch of horseback stuff and, and I always carry it on my person just in the event that you were to, let's say, whatever your horse bucks you off because the grizzly bear charged it or something like that you still got it you still got it with you like if it's on your person then you always got it and you always carry your binos anyways it weighs no difference right right makes no difference yeah man we just had quite an adventure with you 10 days out there a riot it was a proper sheep hunt we (laughs) had so much fun i mean uh your wife was nice, nice enough to give me some chapstick today because my lips are so cracked. <laughs> and it's just probably a combination of the de- being dehydrated over and over and the, the wind we endured uh, just dried me out. But I think my lips cracked so much because I was l- laughing so much on this trip <laughs> that I just like wrecked myself. Oh, it was super fun. That was a great group. It was. That, and it makes, that... all the, makes all the difference to have a good team of guys out there. Yeah, all all get along and are, have the same goal out there. Yeah, and same mentality and and uh, same sense of humor. Honestly, that makes it. <laughs> yeah. You already, you you always already have something in common because you're all you're all like, sheep hunters. You're all sheep hunting, and regardless of if you're the you're the guide or the client, uh, you're doing it because you love it. Like Absolutely. if you're the guide, you're doing that job because you love it. If you're the client, you went and you you did something to the point where you could afford to go and do that because you love it. Yeah. So it's always, yeah, it's, it's always fun. I, I always kind of wondered, you know, it's no secret stone sheep are some of the most expensive hunts in North America. And it's just a, a simple supply and demand equation. Um, Ryan yeah. threw some numbers at us the other day, you know, there's something of over a hundred thousand doll sheep and there's, you know, 100,000 bighorn, 80,000 bighorns, and the number gets smaller into deserts, and there's 12,000 stone sheep. And so, roughly, it, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's just a very basic supply and demand equation uh, that creates that creates a high value on these hunts, um, which I would have assumed really 
tailors the clientele and your average client to be an older, wealthier guy. And that's probably true sometimes, but it sounds like that's really not all the time that's true. You get some real badasses out here hunting with you and some guys that are really passionate, uh, really passionate about, about the sheep and about, uh, the mountain hunting and not so much just, uh, box checkers type trophy hunters most of our guys that 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 we hunt with are are guys we've hunted with several times yeah you have you kind of have the luxury of so everyone wants to hunt stone sheep so you could probably keep taking the people you want to yeah yeah and and it and it's it's been a riot we have great clients and great they're fun hunts and they're typically successful hunts so Mm -hmm. it's just yeah, it's it, there. It's an incredible hunt to do. Period. I think. Yeah, we really. You know, you were telling us, you're a hundred percent successful with your your rifle hunters, and we showed up. We feel like we're half capable <laughs> to hike around and get after it. And boy, did we take it down to the the wire and almost wreck your winning streak. <laughs> that's that's always how it goes, though. I know. It's you. You have someone that can really move, and then it's like the hardest it just turns into it's i don't know what it is the timing it's like a moon phase or something like that nothing's moving we did have some really bad winds though for yeah i think that was five days straight i think that shut down i think they made them hold up they hide better they they get in little pockets and get out of the sight and yeah they might be on the same shelf but they're tucked in tighter yeah well and and we've seen it multiple times that's right calm down a little bit or or they just had to get up and move and you'd be like man we've been glassing that and what days and there's there's four of us glassing that and every one of us was spotting stuff it's not like nobody it wasn't like there was one guy out there that could see him right everyone was spotting stuff and you you would be looking at one face and all of a sudden something would pop out hours into it that's like the magic of sheep hunting and mountain hunting to me is that anything can happen at any time and you have to keep this faith that it that it is that the sheep are there somewhere um, because it's so easy to dismiss something, to look at the mountainside and be like, I don't see anything. There's yep. nothing there. And any, uh, any real sheep hunter knows that is not the case. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I think it's, it's the one that I always find is you have to take everything to completion, What whatever it is. Like if you're checking out one hmm. spot, you got to check it all the way out like you can't just look into a drainage and be like oh yeah i looked in there and check that out yeah you got to go right to the back of it get right that last corner check that last little spot and well boy that's exactly what we did yesterday yeah and it paid off killed a 10 year old ram yeah it was yeah, incredible it was incredible um outfitting and operating this beautiful place you're you said you're five years into this and uh you like it here love it yeah yeah it's our fifth season right now so it's going it seems to be going very well it's been great yeah and we have besides the whole covid stint you probably had to go through boy that canada really got uh the short end of the stick on that one yeah that was rough i mean there's zero clients that you could take out and we had a full staff already and 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 the way that it was presented is it was kind of leading you on that like any second you were going to next oh, no. in 10 days, you were going to have an opening, right? Like, Oh, we're going to open it up. We here. might let somebody in. Yeah. So you probably you, had clients ready waiting so, to jump. Across. Oh, we had guys waiting to hop on a plane and 
the next 24 hours kind of thing and and crew in place watching rams and oh. that kind of stuff ready to go for for the entire season was it just one year or did it kind of trickle into multiple years of heavy restrictions on you well the restrictions were was one year i would say like the heavy restrictions were one year uh it definitely kind of jacked things up yeah because I mean, you're just you're trying to carry clients i mean everything in bc is on a quota so and it's not alberta where, where we run our whitetails is great they gave us the option to like carry over some of those permits you could carry over for the next five years so you could utilize those later on whereas in in bc they they didn't so you had They're just a, come and went yeah you had a year that you weren't able to take clients that you that you don't get that quota back for man that's rough so yeah well besides that you guys bounced out of it fine uh and seem, things seem to be going really well are you about halfway through your sheep season right now we are exactly half exactly yeah. halfway yeah um and what else do you do here you got you got an elk season coming up what else do you guys focus on around here elk is our next main one mm -hmm. we'll run about probably i think this year we have about 25 elk hunters that we'll take oh wow and uh that's that that's one of the funnest hunts too i mean if it's fun in a different way. You know, you've hunted elk. Absolutely. It's like their sheep hunting is a riot. Goat hunting is a riot. And then elk hunting is a is another animal as well. Yeah. It's just a. Yeah. See, we saw tons of elk on this trip. Um, and it got me kind of jazzed up to get back to Montana and excited for September. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the next thing for me. You know, I, I'll go home and work for a couple of weeks and then uh, dive right into a busy elk season. Yeah. So I look forward to that. that. You got 25, roughly 25 elk hunts coming up after sheep season. Yeah, 20, 25 is usually what we take, and then we'll have a couple moose hunters and uh, and a few mountain goat hunts as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so when do you wrap up at this camp? This one will shut down around October 10th to the 15th. Typically, where clients are out, and then we're mid-October, we're, we're shut down. Let's talk about your horses. Because yeah. I think they're so impressive. Oh, they're machines. I didn't give them enough credit coming into this. I was, I'm not a big horse guy. Um, I've often just been a firm believer in, like, I can walk just as fast as a horse. I can go further than a horse. I can go places a horse can't. I don't really need a horse. Yeah, it would be helpful to get an elk out maybe, but I don't really need horses. Turns out <laughs> they enable us to do so much more than we could possibly do with our own two feet. Oh, they're incredible. Yeah, so how many horses do you think y'all have around here? We, roughly about 130. I and think that's what we have. So about, they're, about 100 geldings and, and 30 mares. And they're big, sturdy mountain horses. Yeah, they're beasts. These aren't, these aren't some yeah. featherweight horse, and uh, town horse. No, they're born and raised out here. Like, these horses... They, they don't come in in the winter. We, yeah, so tell me about season, that. What does that look like, a year in the life of a horse here? We basically, we, well, at the end of the season, we we go and we trim their feet and make sure that they're all dewormed and healthy and kick them loose, and they go out and fend for themselves for the winter. We come in, check on them, snowmobile out, drop them like some minerals and just some feed. If it's a really rough winter, we'd haul them out some feed and that kind of stuff, but typically we haven't had to do much with them. And then 
when spring rolls around, they start dropping babies out there just like elk and moose. And by the time that we hit, usually in in mid to late June, we'll, we'll have a couple guys in here that are uh, that are starting to bring the horses in and, and start working with them. It, it blows my mind that 75% of the year, they're wild animals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like riding a moose around. It, 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 <laughs> it totally is. I mean, I can't. They were so well behaved. It, it. I wouldn't believe if I hadn't seen it from my own eyes that this is their home year round, that they are wild animals three quarters of the year. Yeah, that- um, it's just it's so wild to me. I have so much respect uh, in those animals, and I see so much more value and appreciation for them than I did before this hunt. Well, and. and, and- Touching on the fact that they're, I mean, they're all well-mannered and, and, and easy to deal with. I mean, breeding pl- plays a lot with that. And Is that right? What type they are and that they don't get too crazy, not too, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a horse guy. I started backpacking, so, but we have a couple of our of our core crew that are fantastic with horses, and I, I attribute that to them. Really? So, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, my limited experience, I felt like I was around, it felt like I was around mules more than I was around horses. Uh they were sure-footed. They were calm. No, I didn't see a horse freak out once in 10 days. I mean, I know it, stuff happens, but they. And I would think that that's more characteristic of a, of a mountain mule, like a real sure-footed, kind of calm, trustworthy mountain mule. Yeah, they, I mean, but if, if, you're, if you were ever to come in here in the winter, you'd see they're, I mean, they're up higher than where our sheep and goats are in the wintertime. They're feeding on right in the high like the highest parts of the mountain half the year that is unbelievable and so the the roundup has got to be pretty sporty roundup's pretty wild that's what i i try and get involved in that one at least get one chase in a year because it's kind of a highlight (laughs) and uh but it's wild like it's it's fun and i honestly one of the biggest kicks i get out of it is and it's and it's it's been done to me so i don't feel bad saying it but it's always like there's always like you always have your veterans in camp that have been there for forever. Yeah. And uh and then you always have new crew coming over. I mean guiding and outfitting there's a lot of turnover. And uh it's always interesting to me to to see the guys that go out and and go on a on a roundup with with someone who's who's done 10 years of it or mm. 2 years of it even. It, even if you've done one of them, you're mentally prepared for it. But the first one that you do <laughs> is, rattles you a little bit it is ridiculous well you're like full gallop down elk trails off the side of a mountain chasing horses <laughs> oh, like my trying, gosh. you're pulling your legs out of your stirrups to miss trees and and try not to get throat kicked by one, <laughs> another branch or something right like it's just you it's like uh i'm trying to think of a way to describe it it's like full contact riding like yeah that makes that's a good that's a good exa- uh description of it i can picture this yeah you and it's, I mean, I know a couple Sounds guys. dangerous. It, it for sure is, but yeah. it's unbelievably fun. Like, it is a, it's a riot. You always come back, you're pretty, everyone that comes back from it has a few war wounds uh-huh. every time, but it Boy. is fun. Yeah, you got to be quite an adrenaline rush involved in the in the annual roundup. Yeah, the, round, the roundup's a highlight. Like, if you can get in on roundup, it's incredible. Yeah, I know other ranchers that have big horse herds that do annual roundups, and it seems to be uh, very look forward to tradition every year. <laughs> yeah, 
it, def- it definitely sor- sorts the the uh, the boys from the men. <laughs> Cowboys from the cow men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the horses are uh, a vital part of this equation out here in this wilderness, and it just it, it enabled us to hunt so much more country. You know, you said it a couple times where we'd ride these horses up 1,500 vertical feet in 25 minutes. And then, you know, we would peel off from there on a big hike. And you're like, man, if we didn't have these horses, like, we just spent the whole day just getting up here to hunt this one spot. Yeah, they take the, they take the worst stretch of it out. Like, that stretch, like, because everyone knows once you're, once you're up above tree line, it's fun. Yeah. Like, then it's easy. But schwacking you, through alders and brush. Yeah. So you get those guys to bulldoze you up there, and then you hop off and go. And it's, I mean, it's it's probably my, it, it would probably be my favorite way of hunting now. I always call it backpack or horseback-assisted backpack hunting. Well, that's a good, that's so, a very uh, accurate description of what we did. Yeah. you. It's a little bit longer days, but you don't have to carry as much weight in your pack. Yeah. And then when you're running, you can cover twice the ground in a day. I, I, I would argue three times. Was I, I think that that's more, yeah, three times sounds more accurate yeah because you could we would like cross valleys that i would take me hours and hours to do on foot we would do it in 45 minutes yeah and and then when you get off at that spot that took you hours and hours you're fresh and your pack's light yeah man what a difference that makes yeah yeah that part is that part is a riot i always get a kick out of it so your concession that you operate here how big is it for BC, ours is actually a pretty small one. Your wife said that this morning, and it was hard to believe. Because I look at the map, and I'm like, how is that small? Well, it's, it's roughly 1,500 square miles. I, wow. Yeah, so. A lot of country. It's a it's a lot of country. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's pretty incredible chunk of ground to, to be able to uh, have access to. Yeah, and you're not only just accessing it, you are the primary steward to this country. Um, from your your management practices here, which I want to talk about, from uh, nutritional subsistence that you help the sheep with, that uh, predator control, habitat uh, management, you guys are the full time stewards of this land, and uh, to it's it's incredible because. It's the proof is in the pudding. You guys work so hard at these things, and it is the most wild, gamiest, uh, you know, rich with life place. And it doesn't it doesn't happen by accident. You know, it's years and decades of people curating this place to be what it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I mean, I would love to take credit for for a lot of it. I mean, obviously, it's. I, I think, and I would argue that all outfitters would say the same thing, but I feel it's your responsibility as an outfitter to kind of take care of it and manage it correctly and properly. And and I and I know the previous outfitter before we took over here de- definitely did a great job of that. So yes, I think that that plays a a major factor in it. Is well, I see it as like four different things: uh, fire. Predator control, mineral, and selective harvest. Yeah, I would agree. 
Yeah. So those four things together create the the amazing place that I'm looking at right now. So yeah. Wildfires and managed prescribed burns both. Tell me about those. What do those do for a landscape? So, I mean, those are, are pretty key. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers on, on this kind of stuff, but the, the fires are crucial. I mean, that's the turnover on those. I, I want to say that if, like a fire hits like it's full after, after it's gone through an area, it hits its full potential somewhere between like seven and nine years, I, I, I believe is what the numbers are on that. But And, and why is that? What, what does it look like before if, the fire and what does it bring after? Well, if you're looking at it, like there's not too many moose that eat pine trees. So sure. if you have a mountainside that gets burnt off and all of a sudden now you have a, it's covered in grass and it's nitrogen rich soil now because it's been burnt and and uh, you just have animals that are being born into a higher protein feed that they can eat more of it and easier access to it, better visibility for them. So most most prey animals are, are uh, sight and, and, and that's pretty key I think as well but uh, I don't know if that's would be super crucial part of it but you just have a lot of things that just add up to better herds bigger herds primarily going from thick thick black timber yeah to more open spaces yeah with with feed in there like that when you're riding through a jungle there's nothing in there i mean there's 30 red squirrels yeah (laughs) living (laughs) large yeah i mean that that, there's nothing for there's nothing there's no value there like and especially like up in this country even the timber doesn't hold the value even if you could log it inside of these areas it holds no value i mean it's so windy and it's short and twisted twisted twisted, trees yeah from dealing with that so any time that a fire goes through, I mean, and you can watch it. You can see areas that are burnt, and you can watch the game population increase in those areas significantly. What was what was cool to learn from you? One of the things was uh, the the timeline where you could see trophy rams on the landscape directly related to fires. So tell me about a lamb being born on a, a burn. So, and, and there might be a few people that would argue with me on this one, but I... Well, people I, I, argue on anything. <laughs> I think that when you can it, when you can have something that's born onto like a recent burn and it can grow up in that in that time period where it's hitting that, that full potential of the burn, where it's hitting the, those peak nine years, which for us in the sheep world is about... Where, what you're getting out of them. Nine years is a is a pretty old stone sheep for for most areas. I, I mean, saw an older one yesterday. Yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> I mean, and, that, and, and that's the goal. I mean, ultimately, that that is the goal is to to do nine plus. And uh, but you have those. They're a lamb that's born there, so the ewe is producing more. They're growing faster. They have mom's healthy, baby's healthy. Exactly. And then they they grow up in this. Uh, perfect you know yeah, it's like nutrient rich world yeah and th- that's a recipe for a big sheep exactly and a big a big anything a big anything yeah 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 like you get burns where there's moose in them and you and you see a moose that grew up on a burn is significantly bigger than a moose that grew up it makes it makes perfect country. sense it's just like not something that i had thought about before and another thing uh that ties right into that is you the next pillar of stewardship of predator management with 
the influx of ungulates and with the uh, habitat improvement and the uh, spike in ungulates, prey follows that. Exactly. So you have a heightened responsibility for predator management at that point. 100%. I mean, and I, and I think that, uh, I mean, any time that, that you have burns and that kind of stuff, you I mean, you can watch it. It's like something like elk will move into those areas. And with that follows wolves. And those wolves then find out that, oh, hey, there's mule deer or there's... Mm. sheep or whatever here and those are even easier than elk and they and so i think that it, you that if you want to manage it properly i mean in my opinion you would just be cut loose and kill anything that eats meat <laughs> and that that would be the correct way to do it and it's probably a little bit harsh yeah you you should you're born about a hundred years too late for that to be acceptable yeah but <laughs> But you can see the results of it when they did it years ago. A hundred percent. I mean, those results, you you can't make that up. I mean, those guys were, I mean, we're not killing rams like the Chadwick ram anymore. No. Those guys were throwing bags of poison out. Yeah. Yeah. There probably (laughs) weren't too many wolves around the Chadwick ram. No. No. Let's talk about the Chadwick ram for a minute. Um, What is the Chadwick ram? The largest stone sheep ever killed in, ever. 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 Yeah, and probably never be beat. It's probably the hardest trophy to ever, the hardest record to ever be beat. It's a North only, American trophy yeah. animals. Uh, and what year was it killed? I believe it was in 37. Okay. But don't don't quote me on no, that. No, I, I know, and I won't quote you on any of this, but roughly it was killed in the 30s. Uh, and what makes the Chadwick Ram what it is? Oh, it's old. It's it's old and it's... Yeah, someone, someone told me the other day it was 16 or 17 years old. I think it was, yeah. Good 16 Lord. or 17. It's the, only, it's the only thin horn to ever break 50 inches on both horns. 50-inch long lamb-tipped horns on both sides. Yeah, with mass. And its gross score or net score is... It's the world record zone sheep. It's 196? I believe it's right there. 96 or 97. Which is... Ridiculous. Almost six inches bigger than number two. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, that Something, sounds right. Yeah, we're shoot. We're we're having rough numbers here. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the Chadwick Ram is popularly accepted as the most unbeatable number one Boone and Crockett animal of any species of any time. Yeah. Where was that killed? That was wasn't killed too far from here, right? Not too far south of us. Yeah, actually, yeah. That's incredible. What's yeah. even more incredible is the way that those hunts were conducted in the '30s. You said it was like a more of a safari-style hunt where they would take a team of guys. And what did that look like? I, I mean, I I don't know all the details on how it went, but I know it was like a massive expedition, like cutting trail, yeah, and, and you're out there for months, and it would be incredible. I, I I think it would be incredible. Like if there was ever, there isn't anywhere that that I know of right now that you could go and do something like that. But can you imagine going for months, just, you just cut a trail wherever you want to go every single day. Go explore. Just go explore and check out new country. Well, yeah. And that, uh, before there was probably more prescribed burns, uh, the Chadwick Ram was probably protected from a lot of wolves by thick timber at yeah. some point. So what is, what is your... And if you're curious where Chadwick comes from, that's the gentleman that shot it. I believe a man from Kentucky traveled up here on like a three-month expedition. And I believe they weren't even going after a big sheep. They were trying to go get some camp meat. 
<laughs> and went up and shot two of the biggest stone sheep ever killed. Go, yeah. Uh, yeah, the biggest stone sheep ever killed and uh, popularly accepted as an unbeatable number one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how they would ever beat it now. I, I just don't think that there's an area where... It's just not possible. Yeah, where rams with that genetic are, aren't pursued for that amount of time where they can... We they hunt, can actually interesting. Yeah, grow to that size. If the Chadwick ram had been born in this era, it would have been shot when it was ten years old. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, but back to predator management. Do you trap wolves here? We we or will. Is there a trapper around? Yeah. Where? What's the state of the the wolf population today? I think. I mean, it, it's high. I I. I would argue that it's higher than it should be right now. Mm. But if there were uh, two of them, you would say that. Yeah, I would. I would. <laughs> if there was one of them, I would say that. <laughs> if someone was working on one in a lab and it was the last one, I would say it's too many. <laughs> there's a man when you know the whole reintroduction lower forty-eight. I'm quick to say like, there's a reason they got rid of them back in the day. Yeah, yeah, they're land sharks. They kill everything. Yeah. And then we just reintroduce this thing back, right back into it all. Well, it's crazy because you'll get, I mean, you can get into an area that can just be a mecca. And as soon as they get there, I mean, the the wolves will just expand to match that population. They, I mean, if, if, Until there's, it's gone. If, if there's more elk there, then they'll, all of a sudden they'll start having two litters a year instead of one and just bump their numbers to the roof. I mean, they're, they're, and they're a crazy animal. They're incredibly intelligent and, and adaptable to all circumstances it seems like yeah yeah they do they're they're scary intelligent they're incredibly hard to hunt um i don't in montana i I think it is the hands down the hardest game animal to get well yeah to shoot to shoot one is is difficult it's very difficult to shoot one to trap poison or airily call one is a little easier yeah, you, even that, though, is still difficult. Like, it's not like someone goes and, and it's, there's no program where you're just, your, you and your buddy can go hop in a helicopter and go shoot wolves. No. But even if there was, I would argue that you would have a very difficult time killing one. You think so? Yeah. I mean, it would have to be absolute perfect conditions for you to. And so the, the, when the government does it, they up their odds by setting it, bait piles and, and coming in on them and when the... Yeah, you try and collar some and strike those type when, of things. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. They'll collar some and try to figure out where packs are. Um, so that's a, a second pillar of your land management and stewardship. If you have to go to the bathroom at any point, let me know. <laughs> no, I'm all good. Um, I got an empty can here. <laughs> <laughs> you could go get Ryan's Nalgene. <laughs> the, the old piss bottle. <laughs> Golly. It's okay if you walk into the living room to use it. <laughs> yeah. Four more steps and you've been outside, man. <laughs> You're so close. You're just knocking on the door of it here, literally. So uh, the mineral program, can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can. We, just, yeah. we talk about it lightly. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to me. Uh, it's a known thing that several parts of... Several different concessions in Stone Sheep Country have mineral supplement programs uh, that have been kind of grandfathered in and been going for a long time. 
and uh in a nutshell they're very remote mineral sites where you guys will annually drop um, mineral blocks to give the sheep a little bit of a bump you kind of say yeah it's a more of a loose mineral type program but and it's something you kind of mix it in and the and i know that it's argued that it's increasing the size of the animals and potentially yeah. it is i would say that that it that it potentially is increasing the size however that's not actually the goal of it the goal of it is to increase your populations your is to increase it's to make your ewes healthier to have healthier lambs that type of thing yeah you were quick to educate me on that and it makes perfect sense um i was like yeah that, that's why you guys have such big sheep here and you're like actually there's equally as big sheep not as many of them but equally as big sheep in, in other areas where they don't do this uh, and the mineral is actually more uh, proven to assist in recruitment rates and you health and uh you know uh the overall herd health yeah i mean that i mean that's my idea of how it should work and what and what the goal of it would be ah i mean it would be like anything though it's like if you're trying to shoot a 200 inch whitetail you're how many bucks do you need to look at before you find one that's going to make 200 inches a lot you need to look at a lot of them and it's the same thing with rams yeah. If you're trying to kill a ram that breaks 160, you need to look at a lot of rams. So the mineral sites, um, it, they're they're a great way to keep your ewes healthy, increase your recruitment rate in your sheep. Other animals use them too. They do. Yeah, hundred percent. You think it's a good thing for the entire ecosystem for all the all the game animals? I do. We we put a few things out like that are supposed to help with with. Uh, like bugs and that kind of stuff with other animals like sulfur blocks and that kind of thing hmm. that are supposed to help with like elk and moose and that i mean i i don't know that they are 100 percent making a difference but they seem to like it a lot and can't be hurting it can't hurt them yeah yeah it's i mean if if you're a farmer and you have cows you try and supplement them yeah that's right and then the fourth pillar of what i see is your dynamic management and stewardship here is your your selective harvest um you guys try to kill and almost always only kill eight-year-old sheep and older yeah yeah and ultimately our goal is to kill nine-year-old sheep and older i mean an eight-year-old ram potentially would still breed that that winter hmm. lower chances of it but typically they're kind of hitting like their their peak breeding ages are between five and seven from what i've been told right and and what we've seen, uh, hence why you always see a bunch of seven-year-old rams every time you're out, and you're like, where are all these eight-year-olds? We sure did. Yeah. Um, I mean, for every eight-year-old ram we saw, I bet we saw ten seven-year-olds. Yeah. Is that a good? I, I would say you're probably estimate? really close. Yeah. And, and and I would and I would think if you asked any outfitter in BC, they would they would have the same numbers. Yeah. And every. I think that's the natural curvature of just mortality of these sheep um we had talked about it. i had heard in alaska and i think you agreed with me that it's probably pretty close that out of a hundred rams only one will probably make it past 10 years old yeah in, in the wild i would be really surprised yeah if there was more than that yeah yeah which makes the ram we we shot yesterday even more special 
Oh, it's it's incredible. I mean, and when you can go and and you're capable of and and you want to put the effort in to make sure that you're going after those type of rams and it's it's pretty crazy because you're taking an animal. I mean, I know this is your least favorite thing, but that potentially <laughs> wouldn't make the next winter. Like you're taking an animal though, and even if it did make the next winter, let's say it does make the next winter, it's like not contributing anything. It's not contributing anymore. It's not. It's not. It, the only contribution it might have is if it was like an older ram that knew of some winter range that when the weather hits like this, they showed, go to this and they kind of youngsters. Yeah, and they show them how to get there. That would be the only contribution that ram would have anymore. But. I would argue that it, it's not even doing that anymore because it's probably slowed down enough that it's it's not going to the places that it should anymore. It's just trying to stay alive. It's yeah, and yeah, and it's probably not going to. It's not, yeah, it's there's low odds. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's incredible, and I think you've got a very progressive and open mind to your job here and it's it's so cool to see what you're doing with this place and uh from the crew that you recruit and run here to the the herd of horses to uh the herd of sheep and the clientele that are lucky enough to come out here and experience it it's just it's been one of the most adventurous trips of my life i was so excited to come here i got invited by ryan to come here almost a year ago as his uh plus one he called and asked me he's like i know you're usually guiding sheep hunts in alaska in august do you want to come to canada with me i was like oh, yep <laughs> i'll cancel everything if i have any. i didn't even have anything planned at the time and i was like i'm i'm there man i'm not missing this opportunity for the world because it is a unique opportunity to come see this place. And we talked about it. You know, we're, we're so lucky to see the places that we got to explore. And boy, did we explore them. Yeah. We covered some ground the last 10 days. Well, it's it's incredible when you get to do it that way, too. Mm-hmm. Like, you're every day you're in a new place. You're checking out a new mount, ma- mountains. Yeah. You're in different drainages. You're hiking under different waterfalls. You're seeing different animals. It's just so cool. I, I love the exploration part of hunting yeah absolutely i do too and it's it's taken me to some some of the most beautiful places on planet earth and introduced me to some of the most interesting people along the way and this has been no exception from that it's been an absolute highlight of the year well it's been it was a ride of a trip i had a great time as well yeah thanks for letting me tag along hopefully i didn't get in the way too much (laughs) hopefully uh, my jokes weren't too bad and uh, i didn't slow anybody down too much all the all the jokes were balanced out by you carrying half the sheep (laughs) yeah yeah no doubt (laughs) all right thank you so much chad it's been a privilege Uh, thank you i kept a list this week of uh terms i heard you use that i'm hijacking i will be using now (laughs) phrases phrases that you used that we're going to go through and you're going to give i'm going to say the phrase you're going to give me the description all right thundered what does thundered mean it's uh it's a pretty general term you can use it for multiple things thundered you can be thundered on a hike where you're just absolutely ruined or you can uh you can thunder a ram off the side of a cliff. That's right. Yeah. So uh, another word for thundered would be like wrecked. 
Yeah. Uh, exhausted. Devastated. <laughs> Something yeah. of likes. So uh, I think the first time I heard you say it was, uh, like, yeah, after after that huge hike, I was pretty thundered. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, that's a good one. <laughs> Next word. Ninjit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll say the word and then I'll, I'll express how I first heard it from you. Ninjit. Man, that ram is really ninjit into that cliff. <laughs> so what does that mean? He he's a sneaky little devil. <laughs> he's hiding out. I used to joke about it that if I ever designed a, a line of mountain of mountain gear, I would call it the mountain ninja. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It would it would blend in better. Next word. Wheels. I heard you say you boys really got some wheels. What does that mean? Wheels is uh, you can get around. You can move. You can. You're not. Uh, you're not holding up the program. Yeah, some of them might be self-explanatory, but I still want you to explain them. <laughs> Rat bag. Yeah, that's a Reuben special. But yeah, it is. I use it as well. Rat bag is just <laughs> <laughs> just take something and absolutely destroy it. Like, guys, whatever it, it is. Was often, it. Uh, you were describing a vehicle as yeah, a rat bag. I would say rain gear gets rat bagged a lot. Oh, like when okay. you take rain gear and you put it on and it's pouring down rain and then you just go trudge through the willows, you're rat bagging your rain gear. You're rat bagging the rain gear. It's going to be it's gonna be thundered by the time. <laughs> they, <laughs> I rat bagged that rain gear until it was thundered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Pile up. I got to that cabin and piled up. <laughs> well, I would say might, there might be a few things. <laughs> there's quite a few on this one. I'll touch on two. <laughs> piled up. The most common one is piled up would be like fill in your sleeping bag, crashed out, done for the day, or back to shooting something. You piled that goat up That's and right. fell off the mountain. That's right. Next word. Jammer. <laughs> this is a really good friend of mine's favorite that he told me about, and it's become one of my favorites. This is a heart attack. So <laughs> I thought I was having a jammer back there. <laughs> when you're hiking, you're on the edge of a jammer for sure. Oh, Especially for sure. if you've had three mountain ops. Oh, yeah. We did put down some of that stuff this week. That stuff works. Oh, it gets you jacked up. Yeah. I don't know what's in it, but... There should be it's like just a, like a Red Bull. <laughs> a Red Bull on crack. There should be a cutoff on it, like a warning label that says, don't take this after 3 p.m. Yeah. You will yeah. not sleep tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My favorite line from this week was, well, Red Bulls are super good for you, <laughs> so you should always drink them. <laughs> okay. And the last, the last thing I have aren't aren't uh, new words, but they're words that I, I already commonly use that you Canadians say very oddly, maybe because of all of the syrup caught in your teeth, <laughs> uh, the word sorry. How do you say that word? Sorry. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that one's tricky. You got to pronounce the O. 
Sorry. <laughs> okay, the next word. Process. We're going to process this meat. Process. We're going to process this meat. So it's another O. It's another O. Yeah. Well, the third one I have is an O, too. My mom is coming over for dinner. Mom. Mum. Yeah. Mom. My mum is coming over for dinner. M-O-M. If you hear anybody say suri, process, or mum, they're from Canada. Good chance. Good chance. Yeah. And most of them say hey instead of a. Hey. I actually say a a lot. And I don't, uh, I just kind of say it as like at the end of like, I almost use it as like a question mark. Like. Yeah. Pretty good hike, eh? Yeah. And yeah. I just, I maybe I just stole that from the Canadian. I'm sure I did. I think the A is from the east side. The hay is from the west side. Oh. Yeah, I'm a real mixed bag. I, I say uh, y'all. Is that the King Air? Yeah. That's my ride. That's your ride. Yeah, my vocabulary is like some Cincinnati talk, some Southern talk. Little Canadian. <laughs> I got a real <laughs> confusing uh, vocabulary, I suppose. Well, it, it depends, too, because I always notice, like, at the end of a season, depending on where clients came from and how much time you spent with each one, it's, I'll have people ask, like, hey, are you from the States? <laughs> I'm like, mm, nope. nope. <laughs> <Vanderhoof>. Sure not. <laughs> right, I'm going to try to use all of these words in one sentence. That plane coming really ninjaed into the clouds there, but it looks like it's got some wheels. Hopefully it's not a total rat bag and piles up on the runway. Otherwise, I'll get a total jammer and be thundered. <laughs> I think I succeeded there. <laughs> okay, sorry for picking on you. Thanks so much. I believe it's sorry. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Peter Panda Podcast. It means so much to me that you've let us be part of your day. If you've enjoyed listening, please do me a huge favor and leave a review and give a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also share the podcast with your hunting buddies. And until next time, go get outside.